I'm James Rocky, and you're listening to The Lunch, a podcast about film and, yes, food. This week we're talking to Justin Simeon, the director of Dear White People, which just won a special jury prize at Sundance. Don't forget, The Lunch is brought to you by Snoot Films. Snoot Films, maker of independent movies like The Guest. Welcome to The Lunch Podcast. I'm your regular host, James Rocky, and every week I dine with a creator or a critic in the world of film, and then after that midday meal, record this podcast with them, talking mostly about pop culture, but also a little bit about where we ate. This week we're down on West Pico in Los Angeles, talking with director-writer Justin Simeon, whose film Dear White People just premiered at Sundance and earned a special grand jury prize. You can find Justin, of course, uh, on Twitter at Dear White People. And more importantly, thank you very kindly for joining us, sir. Yes, you too. Uh, we dined at My Two Cents, That's which right. is a, a higher-end soul food place. Oh, and we'll, yeah. we'll talk about that. I want to say that it was your idea, not mine. <laughs> uh, there are very few Canadian restaurants in Los Angeles that I could have recommended, but... Let me ask you, as we didn't talk about it over the meal, but how much fun are you having just kind of messing with people a little bit, saying, let's talk about Dear White People at a soul food restaurant. You let's- know, <laughs> well, I, you know, I go to my two cents for the, the gluten-free fried chicken. I'm just keeping it all the way real. Yeah. I just, I, you know, the food's really good. But I, you know, I do, I get a subversive thrill, man. I do. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but with Dear White People, I love, uh, I love putting characters on the screens that constantly sort of like, you know, fight against your presumptions about them and doing things in an air quotes black movie that you're not supposed to do. I, I do. I enjoy that. We should explain. Uh, it's always, you go to Sundance and it's like this weird time machine. You stumble sure. out of the DeLorean after 10 days and you're like, Marty, you're going to love these movies in about a year. But for those of our listeners who were not lucky enough to be at Sundance, can sure. you do a brief recap of what Dear White People is about? So Dear White People is about a group of uh, black kids at a mostly white college who are sort of um, struggling to define themselves and, and to figure out what it means to be black, what it means to be a black face in a white place. Uh, against the sort of backdrop of this um, African-American themed, you know, costume party that is slowly sort of developing and coming together, um, you know, in some ways touching and moving around their, their various storylines. So it's sort of Thanks, like, sir. you know, it, for me it's like it's kind of an ode to sort of the old black Hollywood, the black art house of the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, you know, these multi-protagonist stories that were sort of dealing with something, but with, uh, you know, with, with a sense of humor and with a sense of sort of like, you know, artful chaos, as I would say. <laughs> we were also talking about the whole idea of the, the campus setting and how mm-hmm. that's been explored by, you know, things as intriguing as higher learning and, sure. uh, and school days and by things as banal as drumline. <laughs> but uh, setting it on a university had to happen from a jump, primarily because, as you said, that's usually the crucible of character. Oh, I'm a grown-up now, and by doing these things, I will become who I am. Right, right, right. Well, for me, you know, we talk. You know, uh, the, the film started while I was in college. It was anecdote. It was anecdotes from my, you know, experience of being one of very few black people in college. But you know, one of the things that I, I, for me, even as the story became to be more about the black American experience, to me, the college setting is perfect, just for the reasons you said. It, it is the place where we sort of figure out who we are. It is the place where we're, ha- we're sort of like, you know, at the height of our early identity crisis of who we're going to be in the world and how we're going to, you know, what's what's the mask that we're going to wear to find success in the world. And um, 
it just felt like a really great microcosm to talk about these black characters that are all sort of having this identity crisis and trying to succeed and reach their true potential in a culture that that doesn't necessarily reflect or get them. Um, And, you know... Higher learning and school days are great examples, but you know beyond that, even movies like Election and Fame, you know, also do a, a really amazing job of telling these multi-protagonist stories that are about us as Americans. Sorry, I know you're from Canada, but about us. I got my citizenship, comrade. <laughs> there you cool. go. All right, yeah. cool. But you know about you know the American experience, but just in this sort of like easy to digest microcosm of the school. You know? Yeah, and the whole thing. You know, the Tocqueville says. If you want to see how uh, society functions, look at its prisons. Yeah, here you go. In a lot of ways, colleges are like prisons. They're large institutions where you have to stay for a limited term and what have you. There you go. That are designed <laughs> to ostensibly reflect the attitude of the civilization that made them. There is also the hilarious uh, irony in that you're making a film about the African-American experience in university, and you go after the University of Minnesota to shoot it. <laughs> I mean, you were talking about things like design and a woman's center. Can mm. you talk a little bit about the location process? Yeah, I mean, part of it was just practical. Like, they had a great tax, re- tax rebate, um, and they had, you know, everywhere you look in, in Minneapolis, you see architecture that makes sense for this sort of, you know, Ivy League school, and when Winchester University is very much, it's, it's intentionally a fictional school. It's set in a hyper-reality, so I didn't just want, like, you know, believable Ivy League. I wanted movie Ivy League. I wanted, like, the Disneyland version of an Ivy League You college. wanted the school from Animal House. There you go. You wanted Farber College. Yeah, like, I, I wanted it to feel a little bit extra, you know, and, and it just so happened that University of Minnesota, you know, is perfect. First of all, it's, a, it's like a city block. The place is huge, and, and you know, we we found this wonderful women's center in Minneapolis that, you know, the interior is like four interiors. I mean, it just every every you know every every corner you turn, it's this new beautifully designed sort of like place that absolutely would fit in a school is like that this. Is that where is it? Kirk, who's a big man on campus, and his girlfriend speak in uh, that very Troy. Troy. Yeah. In that, Kirk Troy. <laughs> you know, same all thing. lost names are alike <laughs> to me. Is that where you? Is the women's center where you shot that yes. great scene of the movie? See, that is a great set Isn't of interiors. Yeah, yeah, wasn't it great? <laughs> you're, a, you're a huge Altman nerd. I am. I'm a fan. Yeah, uh, that shot where it's like these characters will move. Our audio <laughs> point of view will stick with them, and the camera stays here too. Sure. That was very Altman-y. Um, can we briefly talk about? You had a great list of films that you looked at. Mm-hmm. You told your cast and crew to look at. Mm-hmm. Can we? Can we discuss those? Uh, sure. The first one being from Kubrick and a bit of a surprise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Barry Lyndon for me was actually a really big touchstone for the movie. Not because tonally the movies have anything to do with each other, but you know, I, you may or may not notice that I, I do have an obsession with the long zoom and using it in, in places that you don't expect. And and you know, there's just something about that movie that I just wanted to absorb on a soul level. It's a movie about a man who is, you know, he's sort of at the bottom rung in terms of class, and he sort of by pretending to be other people finds his way to the top but you know loses who he is and and it's this identity story and it's you know it's a period piece it's a Kubrick period piece it's very different from my movie but there was something about it there was a melancholy to it that I I just wanted it in my bones when I was making Dear White People and um, you know there is there is one visual quote from Barry Lyndon in my movie, uh, you know, which is would be weird to hard to describe on a podcast, but you know, a group of the characters from from the campus uh, comedy magazine Pastiche That's are right. sitting around talking about how they can best do a transgressive party. <laughs> One of them is black, the rest are white. Yeah. But you were saying it was inspired by the hangover sequence. Well, yeah, there's a scene where you know Barry and his and his cronies are sort of hung over, and the wife is is sort of walking in on them. 
And and it just I just wanted to to do that shot in my movie because you would never expect it. And it was also really it was well suited for the scene too. Um, and I, I and I wanted to I wanted to make a connection. I mean, the whole thing about Barry Lyndon is that it's about this very small, sealed world of power and privilege with yeah. these incredibly ornate, meaningless social codes. Absolutely. Which also describes university. Certainly, yeah, absolutely. You are, uh, and I like the long zoom too, if only because, you know, uh, I am legend. Did you see that? I did, yeah. yeah. For the whole thing of like using the shaky cam, mm-hmm. which suggests that Will Smith was the last man on earth, but he was being followed by the last cameraman. Right, right. <laughs> I like the long zoom because it makes you feel like you're being co-opted into an act of eavesdropping. Sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're you're the, aware of the shift in the perception. And the other thing about a zoom that I love is that like a zoom is 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 it's it's a piece of language that only exists in the cinema because it doesn't replicate anything that we go through. Like, you know, a dolly move, like we know what it looks like to move towards something and away from it and side to side. Everything in movies sort of mimics our normal experience, visual experience of the world except for the zoom. Like a person, you can't zoom into something with your eyes. It's, it's something that only exists in the it's cinema. It's fair to say that I don't get Kurosawa wipes every time Ex- I blink. Well, that's true. Which I would love. Uh, yeah, well, you know, maybe but in the sequel we'll add the, some. <laughs> but you also make the excellent point that, you know, film should aspire to be more than like a moving book or yeah. a big TV or... I like when movies admit that they're a movie. I just, I do, you know. So there is a little bit of shaky cam in my movie, but I, I tend to I tend to go for the things that feel very cinematic. But I mean, you are also doing 14 setups a day for 20 hours a day. Is there a possibility the camera was just shaking due to exhaustion? It's true. It's true. We were just delirious at you, the end of it. You also were talking about uh, she's got a habit of something mm. that you looked at from a film because, as you said, even Mr. Lee may not con- not consider it among his top, but it has that weird, youthful vitality. Just, I just love that movie because even though you know. You know, it's it's not from an era that I know personally. Like I, I I've never known what it's like to be, you know, a boho black guy in you know late '80s New York in Brooklyn. I don't know that experience, but that movie to this day is so badass, and it's just sort of like I think the way I described it earlier, you know, in very articulate terms, is it's it's very fuck yeah I'm here. You yeah. know, it's it's just it's a it's a shot in the arm even now watching it, and I just wanted to I wanted to again absorb some of that energy in my bones. You know? You know what I mean? You were saying this is hardly the, first, the only script you had. But you had some that were smaller and some mm-hmm. that were bigger. I, I mean, a lot of the time Sundance, you realize that independent film has turned into kind of a cage where it should mm-hmm. be a frontier. And mm-hmm. for a couple of years, I was seeing a lot of movies about road trips. Sure, yeah, yeah. And, and protagonists thrown together who fall for each other right. while <laughs> she and him play and all of that. I mean, did you have, like, a road trip rom-com but then said... Out of hell with it! If I'm making a movie, I'm, I'm throwing some bombs. I didn't. No? I did not. I'll, I have to say, uh, you know, the projects that I was considering doing first, and I knew I needed a good first project, um, one that wasn't too big, one that wasn't too small. They all have a lot of bombs to throw. Right. So I've got a few, you know, stashed behind me once this movie comes out. But um, but no, I, I made it because you know for many reasons, but one of which is that it was very much in the zeitgeist. These sort of blackface parties were starting to happen with more frequency, and also like it just felt like it just felt like the time was now. It was the thing that I most wanted to talk about. It wasn't like an insurmountably large film, and it wasn't so tiny that no one would ever see it. It just felt right, you know. And, and I and I started the Dear White People Twitter account specifically to hone in on the voice of of um, the lead character Sam. 
And the response that I was getting, it just felt like, you know what, this movie has a place now with audiences, and and it's why not, you know? I, I also think it's really interesting how the, the degree to which white just gets co-opted as lame, and I'm certainly not helping. <laughs> I actually want to ask you that. Which You're is very to, cool, James. To, oh, comrade, please, to get you uh, Sam's take on this, because, you know, she often says, you know, please don't just touch your friend's hair, which yeah. I would never do to anyone. Sure. <laughs> you know, um... Uh, when I am around a house and I put on Kanye West often, all the time, instead of the actual N-word, which yeah, yeah. I call the N-word, uh-huh. I will say neighbor. Okay. That's Horribly racist or just lightly Canadian? I think it's adorable. That's you know, <laughs> it really makes all of Kanye's work feel Sesame Street. It really does. Yeah. That's actually very sweet. Neighbors should... might snatch your necklace, might that's jack r- your Lexus. That's right. He should put that, uh, he should do that for the radio mix. I think that'd be really, I think that'd be really sweet. Yeah. I, uh, but again, it's the whole thing of, you know, is is that well-intentioned, or is that really, really dumb? You know, I don't think it's anything. Like, to be honest with you, like, black people put the word out into the zeitgeist. They're are the main consumers of, of hip-hop music is white people. I mean, that's where the money comes from. So it's kind of like at a certain point, you know, I, I personally don't want to hear you say that word, James. No, or, nor do I or, feel or, a know, need to say I, it. I don't, you know, I, it's not something I would allow in my circle of, of multi-ethnic friends, you know. But uh, but I, I can't really get on a soapbox and say that it's, you know, absolutely wrong and morally reprehensible because we we put it out into the culture. So, you know, of and course also, it's going to be, of course it's going to be co-opted. Like that's, you know, it's sort of like you can't make... You can't, you know, make hats and then be mad that, like... There's a lot of felt on the ground. There's, like, a lot of people wearing the hat. Right. It's just, like, you made the hat and you sold, you sold it. So, you and know. And the whole thing of, yeah, you know, somebody like Questlove mm-hmm. finds it hard to sell records to the degree that somebody like Jay-Z does. It's true. You know? It's but, true. And at the same time, what I will say about Mr. West is not only am I fond of his tunesmithery and cadence, but also <laughs> that his work seems to be this constant active insecure egotism mm. and it's negotiating those two shoals sure, yeah, yeah. that I find really interesting. And he's just an I mean, if we're going to talk about Kanye, I mean he's an artist, like he is just a balls to the walls artist and yeah. he's doing things that are not necessarily deemed commercial but he's doing them because they're interesting and because they're saying something. You may not like what he has to say, you may find what he has to say incoherent, but he's, he's definitely saying something. It's not just the same old same old. I liked uh, after uh, uh, Mr. West and uh, Mr. Carter collaborated on uh, Neighbors in Paris. I remember that. Uh, and I can't recall Mostef's new name. You're so Bay, silly. I but uh, he did a variation called Neighbors in Poverty, mm. which was all about, you know, when you ask what's 50 grand to a melon farmer like me. Right, 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 right. And his answer is, oh, that's more than I made last year. Right, right, right. Um, do you, I mean, do you find, and again, we're diverging a lot here, but that's what this <laughs> podcast is all about. Do you find affluenza to be as much of a problem in, like, across culture, regardless of race, i.e., you know, I don't like hearing somebody talk about their car, whether they're Keith Urban or Nas, you know? You know, it's it's interesting because... I mean, you. I, I mean, it's it's a big part of the black community and a part of black culture because there is a sort of aspirational thing that happens. Um, and we talked a little bit about class earlier, but certainly, like, there's a lot of black artists um, that are very successful that came out of lower, you know, levels of of socio socioeconomic levels. And so there is this aspirational quality about the um, about collecting wealth and 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 collecting things. I think, like, it's just sort of, that's, of course that's a part of 
of the conversation because you have people growing up trying to get out of these situations and these circumstances. Like, of course they're going to aspire to these things, you know. So I don't know if I I don't know if I have a problem with it really. I mean, I think like you know um, that's part of our culture in a lot of ways, and I'm just sort of accepting it. Parts of culture that are invariably about watching money in its various forms aren't especially interesting to me, and I don't know if that's because I'm a huge nerd or (laughs) destined for poverty. I do. I did like how this summer when Lord came out with Royals and Mm. dared to question like the price tag of Mm -hmm. the hip hop lifestyle. Right. Everybody lost their minds. Like one. 40-pound, 16-year-old from New Zealand was sure. going to overturn <laughs> decades of Gucci logos sure. and Lamborghini grills. Sure. I was like, that, 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 that indicated to me that that might be caving a little bit. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, yeah, to a degree until... But, I mean, that's sort of everyone's thing, though. It's like everyone sort of comes up because they're authentic and different than what's in the mainstream, and then that becomes the mainstream. I mean, I guarantee guarantee you, like, you know, if Lord gets the right offer from the right (laughs) major corporation, you know, she's going to take it, because that makes sense We're going to see Lord for Maybach? I mean, come on. Let's be popping her 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 gold door and going, change my mind, dummies. Well, it won't be that, you know, it won't be that obvious, but it happens. I mean, come on. You know, Kanye West's whole thing when he first started was about being middle class. Like that's right. what that's what he was talking College about. College dropout. That's what right. was so appealing about him at the beginning of his career. Now he's a rich man, so he's he's rapping about being rich. You know, give Lord give Lord ten years. <laughs> <laughs> when she's at the advanced age of twenty six. I mean, what's she gonna do? Turn the money down? Like, come right. on, like you know. Right. Um, you were cutting while you were shooting. You yes. had a great uh, editor in Mr. Philip Philip Bartel. Right, and your cinematographer was uh, Topher Osborne. And Mr. Osborne's also worked. I mean, I didn't. He did like this is his first narrative feature. He's done some doc features, um, which trains you how to get stuff. The only time you can get it, right? What's that? When you shoot docs, it's like you can't ask like oh, you sure. can't ask for a retake. Right? <laughs> yeah, you no, you can't say back to one for that heartrending confession. Everybody, it's true. It's true. Yeah. But, but he and I worked on the concept trailer some years ago. And he's just a great, I mean, he's a fantastic DP, and, you know, I'd seen a lot of his shorts and on all of these things, so, you know, he, he was, he was I, I knew he had it in him. It just, right. it just happens to be, you know, his, his first feature. And a nice big canvas to play with, yeah, right? Doing great. different things visually and deliberately mm-hmm. as part of a mm-hmm. meta-textuality of it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, a lot of the film is from a viewpoint of uh, Mr. Mr. Williams' character. No. Uh, Tyler James Williams? Yes, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Williams' mm-hmm. character. Yeah, yeah. I always call people with their last names yeah, unless they've okay. been to their homes. It's classic. Mr. Williams' <laughs> character, who is like the black gay nerd. Sure. Which is like the outcast among the out. It's like being yeah, yeah, yeah. Jewish in Quebec. Exactly. You're the minority <laughs> nobody likes. Inside the minority, very few people like. Right. Inside the minority, almost right. nobody likes. Inside a box, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's kind of a great viewpoint character, and in many ways that was you, right? Yeah, like yeah, looking absolutely. around and going, I am large, I contain multitudes. Yeah, yeah, Quoting yeah. Walt Whitman. But, uh, <laughs> but the college experience isn't quite ready for those multitudes, right? right? Well, the culture isn't. I mean, that's, you know, you know, Lionel is about... There's a lot of people who don't know how to be because the, the, they're not in the culture. And, you know, growing up, there is this, like... It's overtly said to you, and it's said to you in subtle ways that being a black man and being gay are not necessarily things that are synonymous. Like they're mutually exclusive things, and and you know I wanted to put I wanted to put that sense of like 
well, shit, I'm in between, you know, I fit nowhere, but I, I want to belong somewhere, but neither one is a perfect fit, you know, I wanted to sort of say that about him. And really, the truth is, is like, yeah, that is a specific kind of experience, but a lot of black people feel that way, because they're really neither this nor that. They're, they're, they're multicultured people, you know, they're, their tastes are, are, come from all of these different parts of the culture, because... Um, because we live in multicultural worlds, you know, I, I never grew up in an all-black Tyler Perry movie world where, like, my mailman is black and my teacher is black. And, and somebody's the, wearing and a fat suit and in well, drag. Well, that, that <coughs> did happen. Okay, uh, good, but, good uh, No, but, you know, it's like that never was my world, so it was hard to me to relate to what I was supposed to be as a black person. And I think all of the kids in the movie yeah, feel this pressure to sort of, like, condense around a really easy-to-digest idea of being black so that they're palatable to the culture that they're in. And, and, and that's what I wanted to get into. And, that's, and, you know, Lionel is the one character at the beginning of the movie that rejects it all. He's just like, I'm none of these things. Right. Um, but that in, a, in and of itself is kind of an identity that at some point has to be broken, too. Yeah. Right, right. The whole yeah. thing, I'm not like any of you yeah. people. It's always what? very easy to put on your scarf and be Byronic sure. at university. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to go walk the moors in the cleansing wind. Exactly, you know? exactly. Out on, out on the Heath, like Heathcliff. Um, the, I mean, it sounds desperately improbable to believe, but I was completely into punk rock. I mean, I'm a child of the 80s, you know. (laughs) And the thing that hit me years later was somebody's great quote that the the purpose of what punk rock allowed people to do was to give them a chance to go out in the world and see people like them Mm. being brave. Wow. Right? Like, you know, it's like that, you know, the point is not if Exine Serevankova can play. The point is you go see X and you go... Those people aren't the anointed stars right, of right, right, right. the entertainment industrial complex. Do you feel like in the culture, African Americans don't have a lot of places to see an optimum number of people be brave, no. or, or in that kind of in a kind of spectrum, and even something as narrow as punk rock offers? No, of course not. Yeah. I mean, you have hip hop, but hip hop has now become co-opted by the mainstream culture. So hip hop isn't this subculture anymore. I think hip hop and punk rock actually shared very similar sort of beginnings, and, and, and that it was it was this sort of <laughs> hear me, <laughs> yeah, 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 and it was this place where you went to see people that were not blasted across the mainstream but they were superstars in their in their sort of bubble and they looked like you um, you know you, you sort of have you have your Frank Oceans you have your Salons you have your Blood Oranges you have sort of um, African Americans drawing from these multi you know cultural influences doing their thing right. but it, it hasn't really it hasn't coalesced, I don't think, enough to really be at the level of, say, a punk rock yet, you know? Or you look at Janelle Monet, where it's like, right. you like Prince, Art Deco... And the movie Metropolis and the movie Metropolis Lang. and Stravinsky, yeah. and, like, first of, me, first of all, I think you got to Coco Chanel that and take <laughs> one thing off. <laughs> but also, like, where do you get that, yeah. and how but that's is... What, but that's what it means to be black nowadays. Like, that's what it actually means. It means that we are... Sort of, you know, I, I think, I think because in a lot of ways, black culture has to be a reaction to the mainstream culture. We have a need to say it loudly because a lot of people don't assume that we are a collection of all these different influences. Like, I think, like, it, it is confounding to some people that this, this, that she would be influenced by jazz and Prince and rock and Herbie Hancock and Fritz Lang's Metropolis and and all of these things. And so she feels the need to put it out there and say it because. God damn it, like, you, you know, it's not, it, it, just because I'm a black person doesn't mean that I'm not a person that sort of absorbs a lot of different things that I'm interested in. They, they, you know, you're, 
everyone was granted access to libraries a long time ago, yeah, exactly. right? Like we're no, no longer segregating yeah, this stuff, but it still right? blows people's right. minds, you know. Right. Which is why, which I think is why she does it, and kind of why I made this movie, yeah. and why I stick a Schubert song in the middle of it, and why I like, you know, and why I do Longberry Linden zooms, and there's and because there's know. this big discussion of Star Trek as both utopian Absolutely. vision and weird guilty pleasure. Well, you know, I was actually that line came because me and, and my best friend Lena Wade who's a producer on the film and one of my writing partners we were having this argument about Star Trek she doesn't watch it I'm obsessed with it and you know like yeah. Star, Star Trek The Next Generation is like always on and we were just having this conversation you know we were having this conversation and the what she was implying was that like you know somehow my black card was you know uh, in danger of being revoked because of my love for Star Trek and I was like well you know what though like Star Trek actually had more black characters on it than you know first and, interracial and, kiss on television first back kiss in the old days but the next generation had three black actors as series regulars. Few shows could claim that during one that time period. One of them in Klingon face. The, one of them was wearing a butt on his head. But, like, you know, it still counts. And, you know, I was having this impassioned plea. And, you know, of course it didn't really go over well. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I put that line in the movie because, it, it, you know, I just I think it's funny. <laughs> um, when you find yourself winning a special jury award, which is what you got at Sundance, but it doesn't mean the jury looked at the film and said, all right, all right. I mean, <laughs> is it nice? I mean, it, it's obviously a tremendous honor. Let's not forget that. But is that little part of you that wants better notes on your report card going, <laughs> but why did you like it? What specifically? Or well, were you able to have those private conversations? I mean, they, you know, they were kind enough to, they, they gave me the, uh, the thing that, the, that, that, um, that Dana read when she presented me the award. And, uh, I mean, I couldn't ask for more. I really couldn't. It was just like, you know, I think it was something like announcing um, a new voice in the history of cinema or something like very like epic sounding like that and you were looking around <laughs> over your shoulder yeah, I was like, like who who's, yeah. a new, who's a new voice in the history of American cinema so like I'm actually you know to me that's the best award we could have possibly have gotten because it is a very specific movie and there isn't anything like it and there hasn't been for a while so uh, you know for my first film to be told by a jury you know made up of Leonard Maltin and Brian Singer and all these people um, that out of all those films, like, they consider me to be, you know, an exciting new voice, I, that's great. I mean, that's, you couldn't, I couldn't ask for anything better for my first movie, you know? There was this, uh, this great essay by uh, Karina Chicano in the New York Times a long while ago, which says, you know, people always say we need more, we need more strong female characters. Mm. We need more strong female characters. And her suggestion was, what we actually need are more female characters who are fully realized human beings. Thank you. Who are I flawed, who are intriguing. And, Clearly, I mean, one of the best things in Dear White People is how Sam is not yes. right. right. She is not Gandhi. <laughs> she has a lot of positions and she has a lot of poses. Mm-hmm. Remember that really great speech in the film where she says, you know, black people can't be racist as that implies, you know, control of a power structure in some way where you can lever right. people out of things. Black people could only be prejudiced. And mm. I thought to myself, that's still not something you want to get put on. It's like, I'm deeply prejudiced. No one's going to high-five you for that. Were there, were there times that you thought, to yourself, God, it would be a lot simpler if I just made these people all archetypes, which is a stereotype. No, I mean, I never, I never, no, no. I mean, there was, it was always for me about, like, so how much can I twist 
how much can I twist the archetype? I mean, for, to, for as a storyteller, when you're dealing with a multi-protagonist story, to a degree, everyone has to be archetypal. They all they have to sort of have easy to recognize um, character traits because you don't have a lot of time to spend with them. You know, I'm juggling four different storylines in the movie, and you know, you know, if I really wanted to aspire to Altman, I'd be juggling 45. And and so these people really have to be easily digested the minute you see them and the minute you meet them. Um, but given that, I wanted to, each time you saw somebody, and there's a few flashbacks in the, in the movie, intentionally, each time you saw something again, there was something about it that you didn't expect that you learned about them. It, 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 whether, you know, and, I, and that's in big ways sometimes, and it's in very small ways sometimes. So for me, it was always about making her not what you think she is, because that, that to me speaks to the identity crisis that the characters are going through. They're, they're, they don't know exactly who they are yet inside, so they're pretending to be various versions of who they think they might be in the future. And, and to me, like, that, was, that was part of the fun of the movie. That was really the point of the movie. You know? One of the great scenes when Mr. Williams' character is about to make this romantic-slash-sexual-slash-college connection with another character, uh-huh. and that character says something just completely tone-deaf and awful. <laughs> Utterly tone-deaf and awful, which I won't even repeat. But it sort of like made me realize that, you know, in college it was sort of when I realized that it was less important to be liked and more important why I was liked. Mm, mm-hmm. is, is that something you were consciously thinking of, that there are a lot of ways to find the wrong kind of belonging? <laughs> yeah, because they're very enticing in college. You know, uh, I don't know. I don't know how anyone else had a different college experience, but mine was like, the first few weeks of school, you're like grasping at straws. You're like, what, like, what, you know, what raft can I get on? Like, which one is going to take me? And I, and you know, I, I remembered like hanging up my Michael Jackson poster on the wall and sort of like making a point to like constantly talk about what I was into in the hopes that like I would find like-minded people. And, and you would have that Cameron Crowe connection, <laughs> that go. high fidelity connection. There you go. And find some people who liked what you liked and that's then right. by extension like you. And in a lot of ways that sort of, you know, that sort of also talks to the, you know, because I, I was part of the Black Student Union. and. You know, it really didn't even matter if I liked them. And I, and I happen to, to meet a lot of people that I like very much in the Black Student Union, but at the beginning, it really didn't matter. I just, right. like, I needed some place to go, you know, yes. at lunchtime. So, you know, um, you know, I, and I think that that's, I think that's also... We're all here together. We can start <laughs> standing in each other's heads to get out of here later. Yeah, exactly. right now, yeah. we're just going to bunker up, hunker in. But I think in college you do that. In college it's, it's, it's very pronounced, but we do it all our lives I think, and um, that's certainly been my black experience of, of, you know when I'm the one black person in the room you sort of find that uh, you, you become an expert on it, and you sort of make that your thing, and or worse, you wind up the ambassador. Like, Absolutely. Oh, what, do you, what do you? What what do yeah. you? What, what's the black? And it's a royal respond? plural you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's you know. And what you want to say is, well, I you know, I for one thing, this movie should be two and a half hours long <laughs> and feature lots of long zooms. There you go. Right. 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 And uh, <laughs> which I would never utter, you know, in, in the studio halls. I just had to go off and do it and then show it. <laughs> yeah. Um, your whole thing about you know being liked for the right reasons you were saying that you, nothing's closed yet on the film in mm. terms of a distribution deal which is uh, uh, you know I can extrapolate and use adductive reasoning and go so you must be talking to people but is it <laughs> is it a welcome pleasure to be conducting those discussions not at 10,000 feet while running around in a parka you know what? like to be out of the it Sundance actually, it actually is and when we went in there you know we sort of went in with the mindset of 
if we wanted to strike a deal during Sundance, we could. And that would feel great, and it would be splashy, and it'd be sexy. But what would be devastating is a year from now, the movie to come out the wrong way, or for it to come out, uh, or for it to not come out, or for something else, for it to get cut into something else. And, you know, for all of us, it's, it's really important, because I think, you know, it is something different. People are responding to it, but it's sort of like... I think we have to be really careful with how we release it. It's a movie for a new generation, and it's, I don't know, like, we, we, we all are very, very cautious, myself, the producers, and our sales team, about making sure that, like, no matter who we end up with, no matter what the deal is financially, that, like, the movie comes out in the right way. Because the, hor the horrible thing in Sundance is not the possibility that you will not sign a deal, but that you will sign the wrong one. Absolutely. The wrong one where they put your film out badly mm -hmm. and nobody makes any money off of it. Sure. And, nobody wants and to then that's my first movie. And, that, <laughs> and then there is the classic Sund Sundance joke of last time filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, True. Uh, presumably, meetings have gone a lot easier for you since, uh, yeah, since the Grand Jury I mean, Prize. There's certainly been a lot more of them, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> what, what, I mean... As has been said, you can have lunch for three years in this town. Sure. Uh, do, do you, are you finding yourself getting that whole weird thing of, I just want to kiss the ring, touch a garment, check you out, see what you're all about, young man, validate my own importance by talking to you, or are the actual capital P productive meetings? It's been good. I mean, you know, the thing about Hollywood, there is just a lot of sort of what they call generals, where you meet with people. It's sort of like going on a blind date where no one's really... Like said on the record that they that they eventually even want a relationship, you or that they're of, single. Yeah, yeah. Or even that they're single. Yeah, you just sort of have these conversations so that you get to know people, so that if the right thing happens, da 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 da. What are you working on next? Is this something that we haven't developed? So it's sort of like you know, it is a it is you're sort of sniffing people out. I mean, that right. really is sort of the purpose of these meetings. Um, but it's 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 very it's great to meet with people after, now that they've seen my work because now they know. They, they have a much better idea of what kind of filmmaker I am. So our conversations after Sundance as opposed to before Sundance are much more about... It, it feels like it could actually lead to something now. Right, which is as great. opposed <laughs> to this whole nebulous thing. Of, well, I mean, it's a Martin Short character, not Kevin Bacon film. Right. the Kevin Bacon thing about filmmaking where it's like, I don't know you. I don't know your work. But I've heard it's amazing. Yeah, and I, yeah. I do a very bad Martin Short imitation, but that has cut down, presumably. Yeah, it's people who've seen the movie, you know, yeah. and that's great. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's just it's very encouraging. It's very encouraging to sit across from people, whether they're industry people or not, and, you know, feel like they had a connection to the film, feel like they had a connection to me. And, um, you know, this is all I ever wanted to do with my life. So it's, it's, it's great. You used to, how we met was that you were working publicity for Paramount. That's and, right. you know, I used to, like, get press notes and arrange <laughs> interviews and ask you impolitely why the screening was 10 minutes late, <laughs> uh, which I tend to do to everyone. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, the, the line is that if you like laws or sausages, don't watch either of them being made. <laughs> Did that tour in the grinding, greasy sausage factory that PR can often be. Do you feel like that gave you a, a thicker skin and a better immune system? It gave me um, an experience of the industry that was invaluable because, um, you know, a lot has been said about the buzz of the movie in Sundance and while I don't I don't think you can manufacture buzz, like I don't think you can create it if there's no reason, like if no one's just... Unless you have a mind control ray, no. Exactly, yeah. but we had a lot of buzz and I knew what to do about it. Right. <laughs> and, and that came from... That came from my years, you know, doing publicity. And it also, like, you know, just sort of, like, not being freaked out by this process of, like, 
doing interviews and sort of like going through the the sausage, being, you know, because when you make a movie, you're then being squeezed into all the sausage casings. And uh, so, yeah, for me, it was actually really helpful. At the time, I wouldn't have said that maybe, but like in retrospect, I'm very grateful that like I've been on the other side of a press junket so that like... When you're stapling the 138-page press <laughs> exactly. kit for Transformers 2, you're not thinking, oh my God, they're going to help me on my Altman setup. <laughs> well, you don't, yeah, you don't think that, but you know, once people watch the Altman setups and they want to talk to you, uh, then it helps. And you know how to do it and where to do it. And, it yeah, I mean, it, it helps. It's, it's kind of weird the degree to which making any kind of art in America has now become in no small part about the narrative of that. Sure, yeah, that's you know, very like, true. You know, it's like... You, Every goddamn bottle of iced tea these days has a boring. Mm-hmm. We started Where it in, came from. Yeah, we absolutely. started in Lemon Meadow, Illinois. That's and it's like, right. I just want the drink. Yeah. Wrapping things up, uh, Dennis Haysbert plays the president, uh, the, the the dean of students, yes, both the university right. president. Has, you were saying you got him at the last minute right before Anita came on set. And can you just explain the effect of having a president from 24? I mean, everyone, like, fell out, you know. It was like I, it was like Alex Guinness walking on the set of Star Wars, you know. It was my cast, and, and I love them to death. We're very close in age, and they're all very professional, wonderful people. But when Dennis came on set, it was just like, you know, it was like you were at church. Like, you could hear a pin drop. Everyone was just so, like, you know, polished and ready and, you know, just so excited to, to meet him and talk with him. And of course, like, you know, for me, like looking up at Dennis Haysbert, who has the Dennis Haysbert voice and giving notes and like, you know, trying to have that conversation, you know, it was it was it was very humbling, but also like really, really just cool because he's iconic. You know what I mean? He's a hero. Do you get to enjoy that voice saying things like? Man, I wish we hadn't taken Twinkies off the mark. Or, or I can't wait to catch up with the voice tonight. Like right, the, right. the most banal stuff well, possible. That, that was kind of that instrument. No, that yeah. was kind of cool. To, you know, towards the end of the shoot, when you know we you know get to know each other a little bit more, you get a little bit friendlier. Um, you know, just like shooting the shit with Dennis Haysburg, you know, was like, what just happened? I have a selfie with Dennis Haysburg on my Instagram. This is just weird, you know. Uh, but it was great. It was great. <laughs> Justin, I have the pleasure of dining at My Two Cents, which is at a 5833 West Pico. A great uh, sort of gourmet slash deconstructed soul food joint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, can you talk about what you had? Oh, man. I had the uh, barbecue fried chicken, right. which was gluten-free, by the way. Yes. Over a bed of braised greens with a side of quinoa mac and cheese. Which you were saying is also dairy-free. Also dairy-free. Meanwhile, I had the uh, pork chop over plantain. Oh, fantastic. With a side of a braised greens. I find... Now that I'm old, I'll eat braised greens at <laughs> any opportunity. They also had a Tom Ford. Oh, that's right. Which is like a lightly sweetened iced tea with a touch of lemon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like almost an Arnold Palmer, but not quite a an Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and more importantly, a great ambiance, a happy kitchen, and, yeah. and terrific people. You were saying that one of your favorite things to eat there is... Oh, God. Well, the fried chicken, which I got. But also the shrimp and grits. If you must know. The shrimp and grits. Yeah, which is basically just an excuse to put as much butter in your mouth as possible. And it's just fantastic. First of all, I don't really require an excuse. (laughs) Okay. I like to take what I call reasons. (laughs) Yeah. And second of all, you know, did you read a couple years ago they tried to change Cookie Monster a little bit? And that was the whole idea was that maybe showing kids that you can live on nothing but cookies <laughs> is a bad idea. And to explain this philosophical shift on Cookie Monster's part, right. made a song called A Cookie is a Sometime Food, where what? Cookie Monster explained, I have bananas and I have broccoli. Did but this a- really happen? 
Why would I lie? Oh my god. Why, why would I lie? I mean, it kind of makes sense. It's right. sort of feeding addiction into the minds of children. And right? when I saw that <laughs> phrase, all I thought was, a sometime food. There you go. So Sugar soul food is a, is a sometime food. Well, the fun thing about my two cents is that, like, you can actually eat there all the time because they have really healthy versions of things. And it's locally sourced. And, yeah. I mean, that was a... I had a crazy well-grilled pork That's chop. Right. You know yeah. they're getting good quality produce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those places where their commitment to composting is posted that you don't <laughs> feel annoyed by right, it. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, I mean, I mean, that's a good thing about, I, you know, I've been on, you know, I told you when I got back from Minneapolis and I, right. I put on, like, I don't know how many pounds from eating. You were saying 25. Yeah, it was 25. Production Day Mike and Ike. Thank you for outing me. Um, for Yeah, it was Production Mike and Ike's and also... Um, just the bread in Minneapolis is so good. Uh, you know, I put it on this weight. But I went there because I could get, like, a grilled chicken over braised greens for lunch. And it was delicious. And and, that's you know, cool. and as long as you stay away from the grits and the gravy. Yeah, that's right. I had to, you know, I had to maybe not eat that as much. Are you a cook? Uh, I, I've, I've been known. I've been known to go in the kitchen. Do you find things. deep frying intrinsically terrifying? I can't deep fry my own food. I can't do it. Because, Why? Just because? Because, like, deep fried food is a sometimes food for me. Like, I, I don't want to... Admit that like it exists in my diet as heavily as it does by like actually having a mechanism by which to deep fry in my kitchen. Well, I'm not saying that I have like you know the two baskets and a huge thing of oil. Yeah. I have a Dutch oven and I got a candy uh, thermometer. It just feels too bad when I do it myself because I'm painfully aware of everything that goes into it. When, <laughs> I, it just, when it just comes out and it's just what it is, I can do it. <laughs> the the number one thing I've discovered is that if you're making fried chicken, mm-hmm. I don't know fried chicken tips from a Canadian. Who the hell cares? <laughs> but. Uh, I found a thing where you do a spiced buttermilk rest overnight. You oh. rest it in spiced yeah, buttermilk yeah, yeah, yeah. overnight. No, that's true. The acids tenderize and everything gets all yummy. That's right. And then you dredge it. That's right. And then you fry it. Yeah, and yeah. that was, for me, the breakthrough of, <laughs> ah, got it. And now I can never cook this again. Right, ever, ever again. No, it's true. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> that's why I don't do it. We've been talking with director Justin Simeon about his film, Dear White People, which has just won a special jury prize at Sundance and will be coming to a theater near you relatively swiftly. Yeah, yeah. You can find the film on Twitter at Dear White People to get all breaking information. Justin, thank you very kindly thank for joining us. It's been so a great. very real pleasure. No, it's great. You've been listening to The Lunch, a regular podcast about film and food, brought to you by Snoop Films. I'm your regular host, James Rocky. You can find me on Twitter at James Rocky, R-O-C-C-H-I. You can just find this program at The Lunch Podcast. Until next time, everyone out there in podcast land, go to the movies with your friends, have a meal afterwards, talk about it. It's a good thing.